I don't know if this is legal or not, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> you guys are um, a part of a rich family. You're part of the human family. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a part of the church community worldwide. And if you chose to be here today, you're a part of our family. And I'm glad to be able to have a lot of my family members actually from the Midwest joining me. I think there's more of my family here for Easter this year than back in the Midwest from Indiana. But as part of my extended family, they were all just worried I was going to call them out in a second. I'm not. Uh, as part of my extended family, I'd like to take a picture. Can I do that? <laughs> I'm going to do a panoramic one. Can I do that? A selfie? Zach, can you bring me your camera? Uh, I need you to sit here on this stool. I'll take ones this way. This way, see, I'm going to have record of you being here. And then if you don't have a home church, I'm going to call you in a few weeks and say, where have you been? <laughs> a panoramic shot. You got it? You good? This was my son's act. Well, my son's act. Don't mess it. Don't mess it up now. Oh, you just messed it up, Eric. Huh? There's always one. Did you mess it up? Yeah, yeah, he messed it up. So, still, so, you guys do this in your own lives. So just, just be patient with me. There we go. And if you don't want to be in the picture, come tell me afterwards and. We'll put a little fuzzy thing over your face. (laughs) There you go. Thank you, Zach. (laughs) I'd just like to invite you all out to eat. Let's just go eat. Let's hang out together. So face on, get to know. I mean, I don't... I'm not starting my message yet. You're probably wondering why you do it. I'm not. I am... This series that we're starting about how the church came into existence, um, I'm personally excited in so many ways because it's our life to be able to be a part of a rich community, to be fully alive in Christ, to be on his mission, which is our vision statement as a church. And... um, Life gets so busy, we get so distracted, and human beings, sometimes we get on top of one another and sideways with one another. And I just know that the adversary does not want us to have rich, biblically functioning community happening in our life. And I want to say thanks again just for being here. But as we look at stepping into life AD about the birth of the early church, I trust that your heart can get enraptured with what it would mean 
if you're not there yet, to be a part of a great community that's fully alive in Christ and to his mission. We're going to watch part of the episode tonight. A little bit of a spoiler alert. I know you know what happens. I had the privilege uh, of watching this episode a few weeks ago at Saddleback Church, and um, uh, the producers of it were there to, sh- to show the, the first um, um, night. And uh, so I remember when I sat there and watched it, it, it came up towards this latter part, which is the clip is from, and so that's why it's sort of a spoiler alert in one sense. So if you really don't want to see the end of what is tonight, you need to leave the room. Um, but or put your head down, plug your ears. But um, it takes us right back into the heart of all that was going on in that Passion Week. We celebrated Palm Sunday last week. Friday we were in here around the Lord's table, remembering the Lord, His, His body that was broken, the blood that was shed. We left Good Friday service with Him on the cross. We come in today and the tomb opens. This takes you right into the heart of that week. And every week over the next 12 weeks, we'll have a little bit of an episode clip of what will be shown that night. So this sets up the context for us kicking off this series, Life A.D., especially here on this Resurrection Sunday morning.
Roman seal has been broken. The tomb is now open and the Nazarene is gone. What do you mean, gone? What do you mean, gone? Can you capture that moment? They're all bunkered away in fear. Their hopes are devastated. The one be who they thought would be the Messiah was hung on a cruel cross along with common thieves. He was dead. He was buried. They were bunkered away for the fear of their life. And the God of the universe intervened. And the God who was the Son, Jesus Christ, rose from the grave and He came forth. And it changed the trajectory of the whole world. Has it changed the trajectory of your life is the question today. You know, on Thursday, some of you avid Facebook fans know that Thursday is TBT. Do you know what that means? Throwback Thursday. And what do you do on Thursday? You post pictures sometimes of long ago when you were a little kid or when you were a fun-loving teenager or when you got married, whatever it is, and we look at each other's pictures on Facebook and go, oh, look how youthful you were. Oh, look how great of a family you came from. Or I can't believe I wore that. Who posted that of me, right? So Facebook has throwback Thursday. But if we did a throwback of generations ago, before Christ, what do you think those pictures would encapsulate? They would encapsulate people whose faces longed for hope. People who anticipated maybe that there would be a Messiah. It's like we, we have our photographs today that we can take. We're here on Easter, right? Let's do the panoramic thing. Let's do the selfie thing, right? We have pictures today, but what were the pictures of the people then? The pictures of the people then were a people under oppression and deep hunger and longing for somebody to step up and do something about the world situation. And God did. He sent His Son. He lived among us a sinless life for three years. He was engaged in ministry with His disciples. He lived sinless. He died sinless. And He was raised from the dead. I was uh, working on a graduate paper this week, had an April 1 deadline. If I didn't get it done, it was going to cost me $200 more. That's motivation. (laughs) I got it done. In my paper, I was researching about a gentleman who was a missionary in India. And he spent his life as a career missionary in India. Forty years. He retired. He moved back to England. And when he moved back to England, he noticed something. He noticed around him that his culture had changed where he came from. And that though he came and left from a mission field, he had re-entered a mission field in England at that time. This was in the 70s. And people would ask him, well, what do you find the hardest thing or the thing that strikes you most between those years you spent as a missionary in India and now that you're back in the West? You know what his answer is? His answer was this, the disappearance of hope. The disappearance of hope. 
he went on to write about what he perceived this disappearance to be, and he did sort of a, a throwback Thursday kind of moment. He went back to the 1800s, to the Enlightenment period, right? There's a lot of good things that came from the Enlightenment period. You know, we can trace technology, other kinds of things, back to uh, the, the awakening of reason, scientific uh, pursuit, that kind of thing. But he goes back and he says, post-Enlightenment, something happened in our Western culture. And this is what happened. There was a wiping away of the meta-narrative. The meta-narrative, meta means big, the grand picture. And so truth that once was anchored in authority of history and perception of knowledge, it was wiped away and truth became what was empirical, what you could logically deduce by reason. Things like values, values no longer would substantiated as right or wrong. They were just preferences. And so truth no longer applied to values in our life because values are as it relates to each one of us and they can be different, whatever we want them to be. And so what had happened over the course of the time, and this was just in the 70s, there was the movement in our Western culture away from the belief that there was a grand picture, a meta-narrative story of authority and truth that was going on. And everybody is now reduced to trying to find meaning and fulfillment in their own little story that they're a part of with their life for the few years that they're given on this planet. And so what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. There is no master truth. There is no grand epic that's going on. And so people have lived now in Western culture and they're looking around and they're, they're not only without meaning, they're told that they shouldn't even pursue meaning in the big picture of life. And I don't know if you can identify this in your world, but we live in a very consumeristic, individualistic world where we think that any meaning we do get is going to come about by us pursuing our own self-serving ends. And it's not always ugly. Sometimes they're valid and very uh, uh, admirable. But we have been slapped away from being able to identify with the bigger epic that's going on. But here's the deal. If you go back to before enlightenment, the throwback Thursday kind of idea, there was an understanding that there is a bigger picture and we need to find our place in that picture. And that's where our meaning is going to come from because the God who created everything has meaning and purpose. And as we fit in with his master narrative, with his grand story, then meaning not only comes to our life, but we bring honor and glory to that big epic story that's going on. So when we watch a series like A.D., here it is, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The disciples are scared. They are locked behind doors for fear of their life. But then the power of the resurrection becomes, as we mentioned Friday night, the crux of the matter comes from the word cross, And the crux of the matter for all of history is Jesus Christ, the event of the cross and the resurrection. And the disciples are liberated in their confidence of what is going on in this big world. Now, they were hoping that somebody would step forward and do something with the Romans at that time. But Jesus didn't come the first time to establish peace in the world at large. He came the first time to establish peace in the hearts and lives that are represented here in this room. 
And he is coming again. And he will establish peace with a new heaven and a new earth. I'm powerfully motivated as a pastor every day when I think of the reality that I live in a world where many people have no hope. If you're in that place here this morning, I want you to know through the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have hope because as we prayed, Jesus through his spirit is here asking you to come be his follower and to believe in him. There is no plan for your life, no trajectory you think you're putting yourself on that's grander or more epic or incredible than when you choose to stop living for yourself, living for maybe others right around you, and foremostly choose to live for the Jesus Christ that we worship here this morning. How do we move forward in a place of making that decision to be a follower of Christ? In Matthew 28, it said, He is not here. He is risen, just as He has said. What do you mean? He's gone. I believe things hinge on the power of the resurrection and the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, who's a Presbyterian pastor at a large church in New York City, I like what he writes sometimes. He reaches to a lot of the thinking people. He writes this. He says, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So if you're looking for hope in your life and you have no hope, whether you've never really checked out or considered being a follower of Jesus Christ, or maybe you've followed him and you've just sort of gone flat and dry. Let's get back to the resurrection and let's look at the crux of the matter related there because the reality is this. If the resurrection did not happen, then there's no reason to even give any credence to his teachings, to have a TV series created that we would watch. Let's just move on. He's just another one of the would-be Messiah kind of people. What do you believe about the resurrection? You see, in our post-enlightenment period, in our world where everything has to be explained apparently by natural means, we have moved away from the belief of the supernatural. And so when it comes to the miracle of the resurrection, it seems to be a nice story for some for the Christian folks or to gather every now and then. But do we really believe Jesus bodily rose from the grave? Or do we not? Because if we believe it as the disciples came to believe it, then it will change where we put our energies at and the trajectory of our personal life on a day-by-day basis. And we should never, ever grow weary of it. So I'm going to have us look at three things concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reality, the reason, and the response. The reality, the reason, and the response. And just briefly with the reality, I wish I could spend more, almost like do a whole class or a series of classes on this. Because faith in Jesus Christ is never irrational. But it is super rational. It's going to go beyond reason, but it will never go against reason. 
And so when you look at the resurrection, if you believe in the resurrection, you can rightfully start with your rational mind to say, let me do the investigation of it. And so our hope isn't in some wishful thinking, well, I hope that was true. But hope is a confidence of things that you do not see that actually did happen. I like what uh, the uh, Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and so that's what I've chosen to use as our text for today. If you've got your scriptures, you can turn there on your tablets or whatever. We're going to walk through just a few sections as it relates to the Apostle Paul and him articulating about the hope of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul was not one of the twelve, but he considered himself one of the least, and Jesus appeared to him afterwards because he was a high-ranking Pharisee who was a, a religious elite person of the Jewish order. In fact, he killed Christians because he was worried that the Christians were changing, all right, the whole Jewish religion. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, it's taught in Scripture, and changes his life. Strikes him blind for a period of time. The Paul realizes it's the Lord that speaks to him. He changes his life and the trajectory of what he's doing. And he becomes a part of what is known as the epic story of the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul then went from place to place trying to encourage and, and wake up hopeless people and letting them know what Jesus Christ had done and who he was because of what he had done. And in 1 Corinthians, we find these words. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. Let me stop right there for a second. I receive, what I received, I passed on to you. Though Paul wrote this a number of years later, what he is repeating here is a creed that was being passed around among the early Christians from a very early age following Christ, probably three to eight years after Christ. And this was written down, it was passed around, and this was what was held uh, as one of the creeds. And that he appeared to Peter... And then to the twelve. And it goes on. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That verse 6, he appeared to over 500 of the brothers at the same time. The reason that ultimately Jesus' resurrection is not disputed in the day and age that immediately followed his resurrection, or even today, ultimately, if you get down and you study the historical facts of it, is because people saw him alive, and you cannot refudiate witness like that. The reality of Jesus' resurrection grabbed a hold and changed those followers. But today we find people that wrestle with, well, did he really or not? Have you heard some of the arguments against there being a literal resurrection in our post-enlightenment? Everything has to be re by reason and empiricism to believe. I put up a simple uh, diagram here of five things. There are five possible theories for the resurrection story. Christianity, hallucination, myth, conspiracy, and a word called 
swoon. And here's what each of these five end up stating. Jesus died. Jesus rose. The apostles are truth-tellers. That's Christianity. Jesus died. Jesus didn't rise. The apostles were deceived. That's the hallucination theory. And Jesus died. Jesus didn't rise. The apostles, well, they're myth-makers. That's the myth theory. Jesus died. Jesus didn't rise. The apostles were the deceivers. That's the conspiracy theory. And then the fifth is Jesus didn't die. He just appeared to die. And that's called the swoon theory. Have you heard of any of these? Maybe you're here this morning and you might hold to one of these. I want to challenge you concerning the reality of the resurrection to take your presupposition and push through it in a time of study. In fact, I was reading um, this week of a, a Muslim young man who, for three years, he spent time studying the reality of the resurrection to disprove it. And he came to a place of realizing it was true. And all the complications that would create in his life, believing as a follower of Jesus, he made that step and boldly followed Jesus Christ. For three years he studied, was the resurrection truth? Or was it fiction? Or was it deception? And you can walk through each of these. You could take time and, and look at um, each of those, the number two and number four there, the apostles were deceived or the apostles themselves were deceivers. Uh, you have to climb into all the thing of how would they go about doing that? Why would they do that? When you saw the clip there of Caiaphas go, what do you mean? Gone. All right. They're bunkered away. They're in hiding for fear of their life. Do you think they're sitting around and going, oh, well, that was a good ride with Jesus for those three years, man. Why don't we just come up with this story about how can we continue on? Because I really like the team spirit and we get to do this. So let's keep doing it. And, uh, you know, I know he's in the tomb, but hey, let's come up with the idea that he's now alive. No one comes up with such a far-fetched idea. Why? What's the first thing you would say if you were part of that day? Show him to me. Show him to me. Right? All the Romans had to do or the Jewish leaders had to do was go find his dead body or if he's a swoon person and he didn't really die, go find his broken up, beaded, bloody body and haul him out in front of everybody and go, hey, is this the guy you're going to follow? They could not find the body because it was not there. And when they did see the body, the disciples, 500 others, it was in its full, resurrected, radiant glory. Thomas, remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? I'm not going to believe. He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to them. So he said, hey, you, you, you forget this. You guys are pulling one over on me. He would think the same thing that we thought. Sometimes we think when you look back into antiquity or back in the older years, like they were dumber than we were today. We think we're so enlightened and smart. Wrong. They were human just like us. They had minds just like us. And they would think through it. Thomas was that way. And he says, show it to me. Unless I see the nail scars in his hands and put my hand where the sword was in his side, I will not believe. And so Jesus appears to him. And he shows himself to be true. 
the deception idea is really, really shaky. Whether it was they purposely sought to deceive people or they themselves were deceived. Hallucinations. Hallucinations aren't seen by that many people all at the same time if you study about them. A lot of things come down to the myth belief because a modernist has a hard time with the idea that apostles were deceived or they were deceivers. So, you know, then let's, let's make up that there's a myth in theory that this is sort of what happened in a spiritual essence. Jesus rose from the grave. All right? Won't take the time to go down each and every one of those roads. But everybody in this room, myself included, will have to make a decision whether you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a physical, literal, historic reality or not. And for those of you maybe sometimes get a little skittish with your faith, the evidence is on your side. So if you find a skeptic, press them. Press them to ask questions. Press them to pursue it. Because the more you press into the truth, the more that the truth becomes self-evident that Jesus Christ truly was raised from the dead. The reality of the resurrection. The next is the reason for the resurrection. Paul goes on and says this in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. He was talking to skeptics at that time. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But if He did not raise Him, if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. In verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men. All of us get deeply concerned about the evil in our world. Maybe evil's happened to you in the course of the last few weeks. Maybe there's disappointed discouragement because somebody has sinned against you. Friends, we all are sinners. There is a sin condition that needs to be dealt with. Jesus has this grand master plan, this narrative that he's painting us into and we get to be a part of. But in the midst of this grand master narrative, what kind of master meta narrative is it if there's brokenness, fallenness, and evil around at every turn? So he had to deal with the sin situation that came all the way back to Adam and Eve when they chose to take their free will and chose to follow their own beliefs rather than the belief of God. And so Jesus came to deal with the sin issue on the cross through the power of the resurrection so that you and I could not only be forgiveness, forgiven of our sins, but so that we could have the hope that one day sin will be gone in all the world. He came to deal with it. But Paul's saying what? The bloody cross and all that, and he took upon him sins, that's great. He was a sacrificial lamb, great. But what good is that if he wasn't raised literally from the dead? If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. And if I could put it so simply, can I use this word? I suppose I can. You're just a stupid person for being here today. It's just silly. It's nonsense. It's our faith is futile or the pursuit of it. 
and you are still in your sins. I had the illustrious opportunity a couple weeks ago. In fact, I think I have to go back on Tuesday. I may be selected for jury duty. My whole life in the Midwest, I was never invited in to be considered. Within 16 months of being in California, I get the opportunity to sit on a jury. But they painted a great picture of the power and the importance of your civil opportunity, so that's cool. And um, I sat there with 100 people in the courtroom, prosecution, the defense, sort of intimidating situation. Some of you are around that, maybe more legal system. I'm not always around it, you know, and it's one thing to watch it on TV with all those shows. It's another thing to be sitting in the courtroom, you know, and you got all the official attire going on. And, of course, then the judge comes in, right? The judge rises and arrives. Then you have to promise that you're not going to lie that you really could be on jury duty if you needed to or were selected. We sat back down and I watched the judge as he painted the picture of our civil responsibility. And I thought, you know, this is a courtroom. There's an eternal courtroom. And there's a judge that sits on that throne. And this particular case, it's, it's actually a murder uh, case. Could be for the death penalty. They told us potential jurors. It could be a six-week deal. That's a pretty big commitment. But you realize the seriousness of the matter, even when I believe the um, individual was there that was going to be um, taken through the whole legal process. And I thought to myself, you know, one thing, I said, you know, we're all in this room and we don't really know what is the truth. And am I going to be on a juror that decides what's the truth? Has this person wronged or been wronged? And I said, God knows. And if Jesus came out and sat as judge, he wouldn't need to take six weeks of people to sit on a jury, would he? He would just simply look at the individual and say, you're free, you're innocent. Or look at the individual and say, you're guilty. Or, like Jesus did to the adulterous woman, go and sin no more. Now there are consequences to our sin, especially in that kind of situation, and that's heavy, and enough said on that. But it dawned on me the reality of a coming moment when we are going to be held accountable for every sin that we've committed. And we've got to, in that moment of jury trial, give a defense. What's your defense for your sins? Every one of us in this room could raise our hand and just simply say, I enter a plea of guilty. But here's the good news. I have a Savior. And because I have a Savior, He can deal with my sin and give me His righteousness. But the only way that He's able to do that is if He is who He said He is. He's God Himself, the ultimate perfect judge. Who better to fall in to the hands of than God Almighty? No one. God knows us through and through, and God is a gracious, merciful person, and He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die and was raised from the grave so that the sin factor could be dealt with. But Paul's saying, if He's not been raised, then you're still in your sin. You're still on the dark side without hope. But if He's been raised from the dead, then there's a means. He took upon Himself the penalty for your sin, every single little one and every big one. He took it upon Himself, and He died for you. He carried your sin away. We sung about it this morning.
The reason for the resurrection is not only for the forgiveness of our sin, but for us to be able to have the faith and the hope to fit in with the grand epic of what God's doing in this world. Do you know the reason for the resurrection personally in your life? And the third factor is this. Our third area is our response. Our response to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. All right. This is the meta narrative. This is the big picture of what God's doing. And Paul is instructing them in light of the resurrection how this is all going to take place. A timeline, if you will. So in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, he's the first raised from the dead. When he comes a second time, Scripture teaches, those who belong to him, those who are followers of him, those who have responded as believers in him. And then it goes on and it states this. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything underneath his feet. That's the ongoing story, the meta-narrative. The reality of the resurrection, it happened. If you don't believe it, pursue it to understand if it did or not. You have to answer that question yourself. The reason for the resurrection? So that you could have new life. Your sins forgiven and you become a part of the community of believers that will live eternally through those different seasons. But the response is something that you and I have to individually make. It says this in Romans 10. The Apostle Paul again says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and you are saved. Is this true of your life? Have you chosen? Have you chosen to do simply what Scripture says? To trust in Him. For He will never put you to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you found salvation and the hope for your life? I want to read for you in closing a story that comes from Jim Cimbala, who's pastor in Brooklyn for a number of years. And this story comes on an Easter Sunday morning. He is a pastor, having spent due diligence and being able to communicate and teach the Word to multiple services, I believe he probably had at that time. I'm going to read this story, and following the story, we're just going to have a song of reflection. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that, to call upon the name of the Lord, to believe in Him, to confess with 
your mouth and to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and you too can be saved. I'm going to read this story in first person as it comes from him. He says this. It was Easter Sunday and their church is in a very hard part of Brooklyn. Okay. It was Easter Sunday and I was so tired at the end of the day that I just went to the edge of the platform, pulled down my tie, sat down, and draped my feet over the edge. It was a wonderful service with many people coming forward. The counselors were talking with these people. As I was sitting there, I looked up the middle aisle and there about a third of a row back was a man who looked about 50, disheveled, filthy. He looked up at me rather sheepishly as if saying, could I talk to you? We have homeless people coming in all the time asking for money or whatever. So as I sat there, I said to myself, though I am ashamed of it, what a way to end a Sunday. I've had such a good time preaching and ministering, and here's a fellow probably wanting some money for some more wine. He walked up. When he got within about five feet of me, I smelled a horrible smell like I'd never smelled in my life. It was so awful that when he got close, I would inhale by looking away. And then I'd talk to him and then look away to inhale because I couldn't inhale facing him. I asked him, what is your name? David. How long have you been on the street? Six years. How old are you? Thirty-two. He looked fifty, hair matted, front teeth missing, wino, eyes slightly glazed. Where did you sleep last night, David? Abandoned truck. I keep in my back pocket a money clip that also holds some credit cards. I fumbled to pick one out thinking I'll give him some money. I won't even get a volunteer. They're all busy talking with others. Usually we don't give money to people. We take them to get something to eat. I took the money out and David... David pushed his finger in front of me and he said, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus, the one you were talking about, because I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die on the street. I completely forgot about David, and I started to weep for myself. I was going to give a couple of dollars to someone God had sent to me. See how easy it is? I could make the excuse I was tired. There is no excuse. I was not seeing him the way God sees him. I was not feeling what God feels. But oh, did that, did that change? David just stood there. He didn't know what was happening. I pleaded with God, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Please forgive me. I am so sorry to represent you this way. I'm so sorry. Here I am with my message and my points, and you spend, send someone, somebody like this, and I'm not ready for it. Oh, God, help me. Something came over me. Suddenly I started to weep deeper and David began to weep. He fell against my chest as I was sitting there. He fell against my white shirt and tie and I put my arms around him and there we wept on each other. The smell of his person became a beautiful aroma. Here's what I thought the Lord made real to me. If you don't love this smell, I can't use you because this is why I called you where you are. This is what you are about. You are about this smell. Christ changed David's life. He started memorizing portions of Scripture that were incredible. 
We got him a place to live. We hired him in the church to do maintenance, and we got his teeth fixed. And he was a handsome man when we got his teeth fixed and things. And, and when he came out of the hospital, how he looked. They detoxed him in six days. He spent that Thanksgiving in my house. He also spent Christmas in my house. When we were exchanging presents, he pulled out a little thing, and he said, this is for you. It was a little white hanky. It was the only thing he could afford. A year later, David got up and talked about his conversion to Christ. The minute he took the mic and began to speak, I said, the man is a preacher. This past Easter, we ordained David. He is an associate minister of a church over in New Jersey. And I was so close to saying, here, take this. I'm a busy preacher. We can get so full of ourselves. When I read that, I said, Lord, may that not be me this morning. Here's the nice points about the resurrection, the grand meta-narrative. I don't know what condition your heart's in, but God knows. And you need that Jesus if you're going to make it in this world and in the world to come. Worship team, would you come at this time? And as we sing this song, I want to con- ask you to consider inviting Christ to be the Lord of your life. That you would find yourself in a place of believing and confessing, not only in his death, but his resurrection, and that his life is a life he offers to you if you will but just surrender to Him. And so as they sing this song concerning about Him who is the Messiah, the one who came to save us, if you've never crossed that line of faith as this David did that day, I'm going to give you that opportunity in prayer. Let's sing together.